Welcome to New Realities. This is Alan Steinfeld, and this program is about the evolution of our consciousness, of, of consciousness in general, whatever that may mean to whoever's listening. For me, it's about perception, it's about awareness, and it's about uh, a depth of experience that seems to be unfolding in new ways to us at this time, new awarenesses, new um, uh, ways of of viewing reality itself. And that's why I'm really happy to be talking to tonight's guest, Adam Apollo. He is the chief systems architect and president of Super Luminals. He um, is, is really, I feel, coming on the scene with a lot of exciting new information that's merging science, spirituality, consciousness, uh, and... Um, um, evolution. I would call it an evolutionary process we're in. So, welcome, Adam. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Alan. Such a pleasure to be here with you tonight. Yeah. Do you want to just mention what your company, Superluminal, is about? Sure. Yeah. It's Superluminal Systems, and I founded Superluminal Systems um, shortly after um, getting a significant chunk of funding for the Resonance Project Foundation, which many of you are probably familiar of uh, Nassim Haramain's work. And uh, I was looking to build out my online education platforms that I've been scoping and researching and doing development on for really over 10 years since launching my first company, Access Granted. And uh, so when I got some funding for the Resonance Project, I asked them for a grant. And better than that, two of their board members actually joined up with me on my team and founded the company to create online learning communities. And the first one of those communities that we launched, we gave back to the Resonance Project Foundation, which is now called the Resonance Science Foundation. Um, and that is the Resonance Academy. And uh, we did that because um, both one of the board members, Marshall Lefferts, and myself have done extensive work in the field of unified physics uh, for the past 15, 20 years. And so we both are faculty in that academy, and it was a great way for us to bring our work and our studies of consciousness and physics and the studies of the fabric of space-time um, to the masses, and also help Nassim get his physics out there in a bigger way. Right. No, I think uh, what Nassim is doing, and Marshall, I know Marshall, and uh, what you're doing is is, well, is a revolution in science and and perception, and is really the merging of what we've been looking for of, of consciousness and science. Thank you. So um, let's go into this understanding of multidimensionality. I, I actually am going to be talking about some of this at Alex Gray's uh, Cosm next week. Have oh, you been great. up to Alex Gray's? Absolutely. Up there? Alex and Allison are close friends of mine, um, as well as many of the other people that work there in the facilities, John and um, Jonas and, yeah, John. and a lot of the crew yeah. up there. And uh, my wife, as you may know, is actually a visionary artist and painter. And she's been friends with Alex for, for many, many, many years. Uh, your listeners can check out her work at serpentfeathers.com. Um, she's a very prolific artist, does a lot of amazing work, and did a headdress workshop there recently. Oh, really? What's her name? Her name is Ka Amorastrea, K-A. Okay. I don't think I've met her, but great. So 
this idea of multidimensionality, um, I think, I mean, I see it everywhere now. <laughs> it's even almost in mainstream media. But um, I define it, I guess, as a, as a perceptual mode. I mean, I think we could take our bodies there, but how would, how would you define multidimensionality? Well, one of the things that bugs me the most about some of the general conceptions of multidimensionality that are out there, and I'll, I'll just start with that because it helps to frame um, the way that I've approached it in my own life. Um, I realize that a lot of times when people would think about higher dimensions, fourth dimension, fifth dimension, they seem to think that when you go up in dimensions and you get to fifth or sixth dimensional objects, that somehow you lose the three dimensions that were there in the first place. And this is yeah. absolutely not the case. The reality of dimensionality, um, both from a mathematics standpoint, a physics standpoint, and even metaphysical standpoint, is as an additive structure in which you know you're dealing with you know a core level object you know one dimensionality for example and when you enter it into a larger dimensional scope you have two dimensions that one dimension is still fully in existence and is actually forming the second dimension when you add a third dimension it's being formed from the first two and they are expressing themselves outward. So when we look well, just at... Just give me an example. Yeah, pl yeah, because I'm trying to visualize what you're saying. Yes. Sure. Well, we can look at it like a point and a line and a plane and a sphere. Those are some of the most fun ways that I look at it. Like from a mathematical point standpoint, a point is like zero dimensional. Um, sometimes it's referred to as one dimensional in metaphysics, but you have this point and it's like infinitely small. But the point is also infinitely large, so it's really just the center of any defined area of space. When you define a line, now you're actually looking at that point changing in time. And what's interesting about that is that like, any point and any amount of space created between that point and another point is not just space created, time is actually created at that point. So it's not that once you get to the fourth dimension that you have time, you actually have time right there in the first moment that a point moves because space-time itself is space-time. It's made out of time. And so likewise, when you have a third point and you get that line and it's forming a plane, that plane is formed of lines. Those lines are formed of points. And space itself, we see as a lattice of these lines and points and planes, which form this fundamental tensegrity pattern, uh, which is you know generally the vector equilibrium, but around any object forms gravitational curvature, and so like the the individual uh, little instances of space-time are literally woven together like a fabric. So when people say the fabric of space-time. This is actually a very, very literal statement, and they don't even realize how literal it is until you really get down to the Planck scale dynamics of things. So, wait, so yeah, that's the introduction. So the fabric, <laughs> wait, 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 no, I, I'm trying to break it down a little bit so I can understand the terms because I, some of it is um, comes from some of the Nassim stuff that I've heard him say, but um, the fabric of space-time, when you're saying what is the fabric made of, of, of what points and lines because they seem very 
non-material. They're more like concepts than actualities, uh, points and lines and planes. Yes, well, they are. They're geometric concepts, um, but those geometric concepts reflect actual things within our experience. So, for example, the shortest distance between me and you, Alan, is a straight line. Now, if you're in New York, that line is basically measured between my body and your body, and it actually cuts through the planet, right? And so there's not actually a straight line between you and me that's cutting through the planet, but it's our conceptual device for measuring that distance. Now, there is also, you know, energy that's connecting things in space-time. Atoms have electromagnetic fields connecting them. Uh, we are connected to the center of the very spherical Earth by a gravitational field between our body's gravitational field and the center of the planet's gravitational center, which is also being affected by the moon that's traveling around the planet and the sun that, you know, that's moving around. Um, and these ideas are ancient. These are not new ideas. There's, there's no new physicists or philosopher who have expressed these things. Uh, besides just refreshing us. But when we get to down to the level of quantum gravity, when we're talking about what the fabric of space-time is made of, a lot of the real founding work on that was done by a gentleman named Max Planck. And Planck Mm. was looking at, and and he's known as the founder of quantum theory because um, the idea of a quanta of energy, like an instance of energy, Um, really takes us back to this idea of the point and that you know at the scale of of the Planck level um, and this is Nassim's insight he realized that the little Planck units that can make up a quantum structure um, an energy at at the at the fundamental vacuum level of space-time are not cubic at all but they're spherical they're like little points they're like little bits of light that you know are actually traveling and moving and weaving through space-time, but at that scale, the wavelength, the energy of that one wavelength of light is greater than the space that it's occupying to the point where it's actually collapsing on itself slightly, and as it's collapsing on itself, it's forming a little node, and that little node is like a point. And those points, those little spherical nodes intersect, and as they intersect with each other, they create a lattice, and that lattice makes lines. Now, again, the oh, line is still wait, conceptual, wait, wait, wait. but it's it's there. No, no, before you, I mean, I'm trying to just absorb, because sure. I have listened to Nassim for many years, but I think you just helped me understand what he meant when you say that the Planck's... Um, quanta is sort of collapsing on each other it's because that is the smallest black hole right because he talked about scales of black holes and he says that the Planck's constant is actually uh this the black a black hole and black holes do collapse in on each other is that what you're referring to sim often just says you know that um that a Planck scale wavelength of light meets the schwarzschild condition um, but yeah. for, for Lehman, the Schwarzschild condition was, um, was basically the work that Schwarzschild did looking at energy at different scales, and he was comparing an amount of energy to a certain range in space, and when you have more than a certain amount of energy within a certain uh, volume of space, then that energy actually creates a black hole. It collapses on itself and causes a singularity. 
And what's interesting yeah. is that when you go down to the Planck scale, you see that at the Planck scale, the energy that's there in the electromagnetic field is greater than the, the Schwarzschild condition for that, that length of distance. So you have basically the fabric of space made of these like tiny little black hole weaves that are weaving together making the fabric. And this is yeah. actually, in some ways, it's been verified by certain researchers more recently. Um, Wheeler, for example, who is a gentleman who actually helped write the book on gravitation that you pick up if you're on in any college studying gravity, you know, released a paper about micro black holes as possibly being the way that black holes or uh, that black holes can radiate, that particles can be entangled, um, and that this these kinds of entanglements at the quantum level could be happening through micro scale black hole wormhole networks. And so the way we've come to start looking at the fabric of space is actually as a lattice of wormholes that that are forming these tiny little light threads that basically connect all of the objects and all of space and time together. And it, it is actually space time. That's what it is, is it's a weave of light at the quantum scale that uh, that is connected to everything. And so those... Well, you know, Go ahead. Yeah. No, no, I was just saying it's revolutionary. But what were you going to say? Um, mm. I finish. Uh, just that I, those weaves of light are yeah. connected because they actually form every object and because it's light that's forming that connection. They have what is uh, what we refer to as a fractal holographic effect. In other words, there is self-similarity that occurs at different scales because of, of this light lattice. So the geometry of the lattice at the smallest scale is seen at larger and larger and larger scales all the way up and all the way down. So the same sacred geometries that you see in all of these different ancient cultures around the world um, are actually geometries that are referring to the structure of the fabric of space itself, or as they would say, like the language of God, right? But it's the expression yeah. of how the fabric of space fits together. And, and consciousness, you know, can be related to this. And this is a lot of my work since I was a teenager, is looking at how these different sacred geometries, different specific geometries, are relevant and related to certain types and states of consciousness and perception, as well as certain physics effects. And so I was unifying physics and consciousness in, in my senior paper in high school called um, The Unification of Science and Spirituality Through Unified Field Theoretics by looking at these fundamental geometries that connect everything in the universe together. Well, this is what exactly what we need at this time because consciousness and science have been um, divorced. They've been, um, you know, the the ends of a spectrum that, that never saw a way of meeting. And it's like this kind of work that you're doing is, is making the bridge. Uh, but what you were saying about the Planck's constant forming, the, the fabric of a... Uh, uh, time and space itself with these miniature wormholes forming like 
points to actually make up the fabric. Uh, how mm. it, it's a Planck's con that's the smallest thing in the universe. It's much smaller than an atom or a proton or how small is a Planck's constant? <laughs> well, there's a fun analogy for that that um, that Nassim and some of our team worked up uh, to figure out mathematically the best way to express this. And um, basically, if if you took a grain of sand and you compare basically a grain of sand to the radius from here at the center point of that grain of sand from here to Alpha Centauri, that mm -hmm. is the same scale difference of a single Planck spherical unit. So the Planck spherical unit would be our adaptations of what, what uh, traditionally physicists have made these cubes out of Planck distances, like Planck length, Planck height, it makes a cube, but we're saying, and Nassim's saying that that's not accurate, there's no cubes in the universe, so let's look at them like spheres. So if you have a Planck spherical unit, and you imagine that that's a grain of sand, well, the size of the proton, the proton, which is an object that's formed of these Planck spherical units, along with everything else, and the protons cluster together in the nucleus of an atom, and so on and so forth, that proton, uh, well, would be the size of the radius from here to Alpha Centauri. So the, the Planck's are much, much, much smaller than the proton. Um, the it's lattice amazing. of them we is so small that, you know, you wouldn't even, you even if you were looking at a proton, you wouldn't even see them. But it's amazing we can even be aware of that uh, I mean, how is that possible? Because we've never even seen a proton, really. We've only seen evidence of protons, right? Well, we, so, we have we have seen protons because we're able to we're able to break apart the nuclei of atoms, and uh -huh. there are very stable atoms, hydrogen atoms, that have a single proton as the nuclei, and so we are able to see, detect, and move protons. Um, but what nobody's been able to really do is look all the way down to the Planck scale. Um, and that's partially, you know, the reason why detecting gravity waves has been so difficult. Because the waves of gravity would not be occurring up at the atomic scale as much as down at the Planck scale. Like literally in the fabric of space itself. In the empty space, that's where those gravity waves would be rippling and moving through. Um, and so looking down to that scale is something that we're, we're not even close to yet. However, there are ways for us to um, assess the energy that's in this quantum vacuum fluctuation space, the, the Planck level space. And that was the work that Einstein and Niels Bohr and those guys were all doing at the tur turn of the 1900s. Um, the mm -hmm. idea of zero point energy or the energy that's still there in the fabric of space when you cool something down all the way and you suck out all the other energy, when you try to get rid of all the energy you can, what's left over, and that term for what's left over is what they called zero-point energy, and it revealed that there's actually this massive amount of energy in what we call empty space. And, and this is a huge insight, and it's a very critical insight because it's, it's, it's not that there's energy missing at all. It's just that the energy is in such incredible equilibrium most of the time that we're just not seeing its effects. Um, it's right. in balance with itself. It's in a beautiful well, geometric lattice 
that is in a beautiful state of equilibrium, or mostly equilibrium, because around any gravitational object, there's a little bit of curvature. Right, but the big question, of course, now, and it's the most important question of our time, is how do we tap into the zero-point energy to use it in our world? How do sure. we make those devices? Any ideas? Are people doing it? What do you think is possible? Well, there's a lot of research going on on those fronts. Um, and, you know, some of it is more out in the open than others. Um, there's work being done to create standing resonance wave fields, um, to create mini black holes in a sense, um, to be able to basically access the vibrations going on at the Planck scale through uh, using larger scale geometries um, at different levels. Uh, through using water as a, as a form of uh, toroidal vortex to capture vacuum energy, uh, wind energy in the form of uh, tornado structures or vortices. You know, everything in space-time orients itself around vortexes in one form or another. And so spin and the vortice is one of the really key tenets uh, of, of accessing that energy and also understanding that geometry is fractal and holographic. So when you have a geometric scale that's large, it's tapping into the same energy that's going on at small scales. But you wanna, mm. you wanna build something that actually can link between the scales and, and that is work that I think is underway in some cases and in, in other cases is research being done. Uh, myself and other colleagues are doing a lot of work, you know, exploring exactly how the interface works between the scale layers so that we can bring some of that energy from this fundamental scale up to larger scales and put it to work. Well, do you know the work of Dan Winter? Have you looked at his stuff? Yeah, you know, I came across Dan Winter when I was in high school and, mm -hmm. uh, and I was really fascinated uh, by his work and I, I really love all of his work involving uh, the phi ratio and understanding uh, compression as a as a form of spin that's in a certain kind of harmonic. I think I think a lot of his work is extremely accurate and and provides amazingly good insights. I, I think it's very unfortunate that the uh, the method of sharing his work has been. Um, somewhat poorly executed and I know he's he's had some lawsuits and there have been other things that have happened that have kind of blocked a lot of his work from getting out there and I, I never felt that Dan did a great job uh, creating the websites materials well. and and getting his papers out there in a substantial way um, but I deeply respect him as a visionary and I deeply respect the insights that he came across because I mean, they were they were foundational confirmations for me, especially looking at um, at the pentagram and pentagonal structures uh, and how they form life and form gravity fields, um, and, and it definitely definitely informed me greatly during a lot of my early work. Well, he's still working. If you're ever over in the south of France, I'll let you know how to find him. That'd be great. Uh, and he's making uh, machines implosion machines and um, the things that seem to work so but getting back to what we were saying is it possible then that you see sometime in the near future everyone has a, a, a zero um, point um, machine in their home that they plug into is that yeah, is that I, the future 
I think that it, it's going to run their homes, it's going to run our cars, and it's going to run our starships too. Um, I think the real challenge, honestly, in my reflection, I think the greatest challenge is is for the people that are doing this work to actually give it away to the world. There's something yeah. powerful about free energy that has a, a spiritual context to it in this in this way that we're connected to the fabric of space and that 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 is you know it's a freely available energy field to our bodies and our bodies can tap yeah. into it and use it um you know and, and who's a great athlete has experienced that yes 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 absolutely um, but you know there the the idea of creating something that's going to change all of humanity can often be something that gets intensely attached to your ego and to the idea that I want to be the one who changed everything for everybody. And that kind of egoic approach to like, I'm the one with the solution and nobody else has the answer, I think has been a major block in this field because I've noticed and I've met many of the engineers and developers working on these things and they just want to keep it secret in their own labs. They don't want to collaborate. They don't want to work with anybody else. And a lot of times they're just trying to get it done themselves so that they can be the one that saves the world. And I don't think that that's the way it's going to succeed. To be honest, I think it's going to take humility and it's going to take someone with the heart and the recognition that if they don't give it away and open source it to the whole world, it's probably going to get either bought, stolen, you know, Take yeah. blacklisted by black ops and hidden away under a rug, just like many of the great developments like that have been over and over again over the past half a century. Well, um, it already is in a way because I, I talked to Hal Putoff, who's working for the DOD, the Department of Defense, yeah. in trying to develop a zero point energy technology. Mm -hmm. And um, they're very worried about how it's going to disrupt the oil economy, and sure. uh, I, I, I think it's ridiculous. I think we have to just, you know, just put it out there. Forget the. I mean, this is going to change the world, and so uh, do you see that? I mean, yeah, there's those problems with egos and greed and corruption, but I mean, just what off like uh, the top of your head? What do you think it might actually be a reality for all of us? To have that, you mean to put a date on it? Yeah, to put like a uh, twenty years, fifty years, ten years that this it, it it's going to have to come out. At yeah, some point, I right? certainly hope within ten years. I mean, honestly, um, I had a goal of twenty twelve, along with many others, to try to make this happen by that timeline. Um, but you know, in talking about multidimensionality. You know, I think that there have been some interesting shifts in the flow of how things are rolling out on this planet. And I've just witnessed for myself certain, certain things that seem to be right on time, happening right on time, and then something happened and certain things were diverted and timelines seem to extend out. And so I think we're working with a little bit different time frame now. But I think it's perfectly fine and healthy, and it's, it's, it's good. It's important for us all to kind of get a deeper sense of what it would be like to live in a world um, free from the domination of uh, mega corporations and central banking systems and oil empires, and living in a world that we're actually taking responsibility for the planet and having uh, globally connected, sovereign, independent communities around the world 
that are self-sustaining and fully trading and fully interconnecting um, and are creating a bridge uh, as a planet, you know, to to perhaps beings in other worlds. Right. Don't you think that takes a shift in in consciousness in the way we perceive reality because it's it's such a drastic um, upgrade to a different way of thinking. I mean, of course, it's it's time, but people are going to have to think about themselves different, think about what their bodies are. I mean, we're talking about a new physics where, where we have to reconceptualize the self and our body and our incarnation. And our con- it's, it's a huge um, makeover, it okay. seems like doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, and there's a lot to take account for, and there's a lot to be uh, reincorporated into our consciousness, a lot of things that have been lost. Um, you know, it's it's kind of like we only make decisions in the present moment that are as good as our assessment of what's already happened, right? Like, you don't touch a burner. Why? Because you know that it's going to burn your hand, right? You have a decision that you can make based on consciousness that you have of an event that's already occurred. And one of the unless big pieces of work... Burner, right? Unless sorry, it's one sorry. of those... Con- I was just saying, unless I just saw one of these convection burners, oh, like only yeah. metal burns on it. But anyway, yes, I know what you mean. <laughs> yes, unless it's a convection burner. And then you'll be surprised because you'll be like, oh my God, it's not burning me, right? It'll be a new thing that you're experiencing. And that that is, of course, happening all the time. But... And one of the deepest areas of my work is looking back into the past and recognizing that a lot of the history of what has happened on this planet and beyond the history of the beings on this planet and of the lineages on this planet, a lot of those histories are wrong and false and have errors and are, you know, very, um, <laughs> I forget the cultural anthropology term, but they're, they're very uh, specific to one culture's historical view. And in a lot of cases, it's Western culture or white people culture or whatever that's defining the flow of history and the truth about history. Um, but in reality, you know, you have many, many different histories by many different peoples that are all revealing different aspects of what is true. We like to think of Norse mythology, for example, as like, oh yeah, they were just making up a bunch of stuff about stargates and gods traveling from other planets and all of these things. And and yet, to the Norse people, that information was their true history. That was their deepest, core, beautiful beliefs of history. Same with the Druids, you know, they had all of these wisdom pieces passed to them from the Tuatha de Danann who are said to arrive riding clouds and bringing the four sacred tools, which are now the four suits of the tarot. And they they said they brought this information from three islands in the sky. Well, like, were they lying? Were they joking? I mean, was it, was it some play on words? I like, we like to reinterpret those histories based on what we believe to be real and true. Um, but we've been wiping out their history, or at least the Christian church, you know, traveling across Europe, was literally wiping out those histories and saying all of that's blasphemy for hundreds and hundreds of years. And, you know, 
So it's, there is a lot to go back and recover the true knowledge of the Egyptians, not the interpretation of the Islamic State that now runs Egypt. You know, the true knowledge of the Druids, the true knowledge of the Norse people, the true knowledge of their aboriginals. Like, we have to really accept the wisdom of the Native American people before we can even begin to heal those wounds and understand the lessons that those people have to teach us about how we can move forward on this planet. Um, and so there's a lot of recovery to do around history. No, that is so great. I'm really glad you got into all those levels and those um, the acknowledgement of indigenous wisdom, which is our people who've never lost that connection to who they really are. So how do we, though, from what you've said in your history and your developmental education, how do we connect the dots really fundamentally from the Planck's unit, from the these waves of time, space, to consciousness? Because it really hasn't... I mean, I've talked to lots of people. There, there always seems to be something that doesn't connect. There always seems to be a leap. And I'm... <laughs> Maybe there isn't, but there, I, I never see a smooth, and then there's consciousness. So what right. do you make? How do you connect those two? Well, you know, when you stop trying to connect the threads all the way up and instead you look at what is self-similar. In other words, you look at the fractal holographic coherence between levels of scale, you begin to see the connection. So, for example, like since we're talking about ancient cultures, let's bridge it in a little bit here. Every ancient culture, or many of them, that worked with our connection to the physical universe, um, earth religions, in other words, that spoke to God, spoke to Creator by speaking to the elements of nature, all of them, almost across the board, have the same sacred symbolism. And it always has to do with four and five and particularly the five, which is the five-pointed star. Even Native American wisdom, talking about the four elements and the four directions, they always recognize and acknowledge that center point. Well, in Druid traditions and Norse traditions and, and many of the other Earth traditions around the planet, including in Taoism, they pull that point out and you have the five-pointed star and you're talking about the elements of matter, literally, the fabric of how matter moves and forms and weaves fire air earth water spirit well what we and know we're now five we're five we're five yeah, you that's know, right our dead. bodies right here we are you're our in a physical spirits. body yeah. your hands yeah. you know you just take a look you're, you are a five-pointed star and so we're so full of that our okay consciousness, go ahead our consciousness of the physical universe is mediated by this geometry that is phi, that is the five-pointed star, that is the golden mean ratio. It's, it's the structure of how objects, physical objects, come into being. And we know now that at a Planck scale, if you're looking at how space-time forms a proton or forms any kind of object that's going to have weight and mass and gravity, it's doing it through five-pointed geometries spread it out on, on in this vector equilibrium state at the Planck scale. And so these little five-pointed geometry intersections for those spherical units are creating the curvature in the fabric of space, which creates gravity. Now, this is my work. This is not Nassim's work. This is what I've been studying 
by applying Buckminster Fuller's geodesic formulas to Nassim's understandings of the structure of the proton and looking at how that curvature actually comes into play. And what I realized is that our physical consciousness is actually a vehicle of gravity. Like we are actually experiencing our consciousness of the physical through this gateway geometry, which is the five-pointed star. And it's, it's actually literally in our energy bodies. It's in our root chakra. If you look at the chakras, you got the four petals coming in to the center point, spiraling up, and you basically have a five vibration where you have fire, air, earth, water, all four directions coming into your body. Um, and then the same thing happens when you go up in scales. So when you move to the emotional layer of our being, now you look back in history and you see Judaism, you see Egyptian knowledge and wisdom, you see all of these other wisdom points where they're always talking about the six-pointed star. And that six-pointed star is used to explain and express the light, the light, the electromagnetic energy of God, right? They don't use the word electromagnetism, but they're talking about the light and the feeling of God, the feeling of creator, right? How to feel yeah. the energy of the angels, for example. And when you look inside, you know, in the structure of the fabric of space, well, the vector equilibrium and the structure of light, when it's in total balance and total equilibrium, is hexagonal. It's, it's, it's in a hexagonal lattice everywhere it's not in a five-pointed lattice. And so the six is literally the conduit for how light moves and flows. And interestingly enough, our emotional chakra our sacral chakra which is like sexuality and emotion and feelings well how did they why did they give it a six pointed lotus a six vibration it's like somehow we have this plug inside of our body this actual vortex of energy in our bodies that's connected to that lattice of the fabric of space-time itself it's able to read and respond to it um, then the same thing happens with the seven but now you're dealing with spin and so on and so forth, when you look at each geometry, you begin seeing these very clear correlations between uh, sacred symbols in history, states of consciousness, and ways that our consciousness functions, and properties in physics in the fabric of space. That's the super brief version, by the way. <laughs> That's brilliant. No, you need to write a book about this. This is it's almost very... It's, it's mostly there. <laughs> You said there's a relationship between geometry, mm -hmm. sacred symbols, states of consciousness, and what was the other thing you said? Well, the physics states of, of the fabric of space itself. Physics and physics. Yeah. So, uh, in a way, would you say then that the um, uh, they're all in the same aspect of the same thing? There's all. It's just how it shows up. It shows up in consciousness as states of consciousness but it shows up in geometry as a seven-pointed star right totally absolutely and and what we're talking about again you know is is the functions of consciousness right like how is consciousness functioning and what level our consciousness is functioning on is dependent on the geometry which is actually literally describing the structure of the vibration and and what frequency that vibration is at higher level simplexes and higher geometries have higher frequencies so the idea of raising your frequency raising your vibe 
is actually directly connected to some physical concepts, but it's not just it's not just going one way like a tone of a low tone going to a high tone. You're actually thinking about a, a, a spatial geometry that's getting more complex and able to read finer and higher level information structures in the fabric of space-time. So like as you raise your vibration, you're actually getting closer and closer to the level of frequency that the Planck scale is actually operating at. Um, now when we go back to talking about dimensionality, we could say, you know, your, your basic uh, vehicle of understanding space-time is going on physical, emotional, and mental. That's your first three dimensions of you know space-time you're, you're dealing with. The fourth dimensional layer is where you're experiencing yourself moving through time um, and experiencing space within that time. And then when you when you start going into higher dimensional layers above that, fifth dimension, sixth dimension, seventh dimension, and so on, what we're actually talking about is incorporating higher levels of perception in terms of what space-time itself is doing. So as a function of consciousness, you could say a fifth dimensional state of consciousness is where you're not actually just immersed in flowing through time like we are right now, but it's where I can step out of this and, and see the chain of events that occurred that led us to have this interview and is leading us to this very moment within the interview or the listeners who are tuning in following their life path and is leading them to hearing this particular phrase at this particular moment and I'm actually seeing fifth dimensionally like as if I'm outside time how patterns and synchronicities in time are working and so when well, you people's consciousness you go ahead I I just want sorry. So I mean, I want you to continue. But I said you just explained how ETs operate within our limited time space matrix because that's exactly what happens in a lot of these extraterrestrial interactions. So yeah, that's one how I, one I, interesting uh, one interesting facet of a lot of people's interactions with extraterrestrials, especially. Uh, benevolent, beautiful beings from around the galaxy who are part of, you know, galactic council type structures, is that the level of peace and relaxed confidence and awareness they have is extremely substantial. And a lot of that consciousness, when they are asked about that or express information about that, they share it's because they can see, they can see this, this beautiful synchronistic pattern they knew that this was coming and they are aware of somewhat of what's going to happen next because they're witnessing the pattern from a higher state of consciousness they're actually watching that flow of time space but this doesn't mean they're not in physical bodies on physical ships and have evolved from physical planets and that's a huge break among a lot of the disclosure and a lot of the extraterrestrial experience or community is I think a lot of people have a hard time realizing that just because a being comes and visits you on what I call the astral plane, where their astral bodies coming in and they're saying hi, like, I mean, I can astrally project. I do it all the time. I have lots of friends that I go and visit. They see me in their dreams, you know, whatever. I say hi. I show up for them sometimes when they need it. But I'm still here. Like, I'm still here in a physical body just like a lot of these ambassadors from other worlds, they're there, they're chilling on their ships or whatever, but they're meditating and coming down to say hi 
because it's an easier way to make contact with humans right now at this current juncture. So, I mean, you're, I, I think you're developing a sort of groundwork for the real transformation of consciousness. People have been talking about that, of course, for a long time, but what we're seeing within the science, within the advanced physics, within the understanding of how we incarnate, actually, as spirit in body and the the kind of uh, acceleration of the time space that we're happening in is all moving towards a, a reformation of reality and the understanding that we are existing in these multidimensional realities. Uh, yeah. Would you say something about that? Yeah, you know, I would say it's funny because it's actually a lot of it is just reincorporating the wisdom and the insights that have been part of this world's history for thousands of years. You know, the, the abilities to astral travel, to go into the dream time um, and have lucid dreams, uh, to explore other worlds. I mean, the aboriginals, you know, they go into dream time on the astral plane. They travel over their land on the astral plane in a dream and identify where their water holes are because they connect yeah. with the energy spirits of the land and they show them where the water is. And, and that's a phenomenon that's been documented over and over again. And yet modern science is like, well, we don't know <laughs> how they do this. But the reality is, is that our metaphysical sciences are, are finally like have a space in our unified physics science. And so we can say, okay, there was understanding here in the metaphysical sciences that we can look at parallels with in the physical sciences and have an actual language to understand how the aboriginal people did this. Or how, say, an Ayahuascaro shaman, you know, Ayahuascaro living in, um, in, you know, the Amazon is like basically, you know, mixing together a vine and a leaf from like two extremely different plants, somehow making this concoction that when they drink, they actually go and travel to other planets and draw pictures of beings with super advanced technologies and cities and other worlds and these are people that have never left the amazon like right no i uh, <laughs> no, i know everything i mean i know it's true and i know that we have yet to tap into the true potential of the human mind of, of the brain itself the brain itself is a multi-dimensional um receiver and sender of signals and information we don't right. even know that about our brain that's right but but we have to know it if we're going to access these levels of interactions with the rest of the cosmos but also we have to know it to grow up to be the mature uh humanity i mean everyone's talking about the internet and that's great because it's connecting the planet but our brains are much more sophisticated than than these um, ridiculous Wi-Fi things, you know? <laughs> yeah, they are. That is true. Yeah, and, so we, you know, we, I talk a lot about, um, you know, I, when I do talks in places uh, all the way back to speaking at the UN and White House previously, and I talk a lot about the future of human technology, and one of the big things that I cover is that when you look at how do you create a starship, how do you create faster-than-light technology? 
right? You Let's say you want to get in a starship and you want to travel to another star system that's halfway across the galaxy, right? So you've got to somehow figure out from where you're at to where you're going to and find a clear path or a jump path to that point. And if you're looking at the light of those stars that are halfway across the galaxy, you know, they're going to be thousands of light years old, right? The light that's hitting you is from thousands of light years ago when you're looking out across the galaxy, right? I'm not actually sure about that. I just, my theory about the truck, because as you approach the speed of light, time uh, decreases. So I know people say that light travels that, but I think the light itself, um, I think we have to look at light differently. I don't think light is as old from those stars as what people say. I Very think well said. Like, I, I would agree with you. Yeah. I would agree with yeah. you on that front that the light is not actually old and and you're you would you would be correcting me on that phrase itself. Um, no, but I know traditional science says that, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Well but, and, but and the and you, Exactly. Yeah. I'm trying to yeah. tradi- to bridge with the traditional science and also right. you know the understanding that um, when you are if you want to travel to that other point in space time, you're not going to send a radio signal and wait for it to go a thousand years in that direction to detect if there's any okay. objects. So how do you do it? You have to actually develop faster than light consciousness capability where you're able to astrally project to that location, remote view, you know, as it's as it's known in some circles of research, Princeton Engineering Anomalies Research Group, for example, um, is a great, yeah. great resource on remote viewing research um, that's very public. Um, yeah. And if you're able to remote view this location that's a thousand light years away, well, now all you need is an interface to the computing system of the ship that's able to read the information that you're perceiving from your remote view. And then your holographic display can actually show that location and give you biofeedback and say, okay, this is what you're perceiving. And then you can actually jump the ship to that location because you can access the lo- the information of the fabric of space in that location. Because your brain and your consciousness has way more high capacity than trying to send like a radio signal and bounce a wave off of a star and get it to come back and things like that. I mean, that's like way lower technology. Right, that's what Bashar says. His ship is a part. I mean, other people have said that ships are biological extensions of these entities that do travel right. faster than light. Augmentation. So you know, as yeah. as uh, the founder of the mouse would have said back in the day. <laughs> wait, wait, explain that. Explain that. You mean? Oh, um, yeah. <laughs> well, um, back in the the day, I was uh, I had the the beautiful opportunity to interview Doug Engelbart at the International Symposium on Digital Earth and sit with him in front of the panel there in the crowd with people from Google and satellite agencies and stuff like that. And uh, and he created the mouse, you know, and he was always wait, talking wait, about... He created, wait, he created... He had the brilliant um, idea to extend our are you know ways of working with a mouse that is amazing well, not only that but he actually yeah. in the 70s these guys were doing video chat <laughs> in the 70s with big computers and he he helped to create the hyperlink like the links that basically you know connect everything on the internet he was one of the yeah. creators of that and 
you know, his original mouse though, I love, I love the way that he thought because he was always thinking about how do we augment the body? Like how do we use the natural structure and, and abilities of the body and enhance those natural abilities? And so his original mouse was actually a mouse and a keyboard in one. It was like a glove you'd wear on one hand and he taught his kids how to use it and it was all binary. And those kids with one hand typing with this this little mouse glove that you use to make gestures and things like that, they could actually type faster than you can on a modern keyboard um, because he was using these like little binary codes and it was just brilliant the way that he had done it. Um, but then they decided, you know, collectively that for for mass adoption, they should probably have more of like a keyboard, you know, that people learn to press the keys on so they could type individual letters more easily and a mouse, ob, you know, thing that you could steer around with your hand to augment the gestures of your hand, you know, and what you want to do inside of the, the monitor. That's pretty amazing, though, to meet a real uh, visionary who changed the the face of, um, you know, how we interact with our digital reality. I mean, yeah. he, he, that's a visionary there. Yeah, he's so, a great man. If you take what he did with this body augmentation and you apply it to fifth-dimensional physics or multidimensionality or whatever we've been talking about it as an extension of consciousness. Yeah. How can we use something like that? You know, because we're going to have to leave the computer at some point and actually embody the biotechnology that's really available to us as consciousness becomes a, a hyperlinked dimensional um, springboard to other levels of our own understanding of ourselves. Yeah, that makes sense. Absolutely. Well, you know, if you look at it in stages and steps, you can see that, um, like, let's say, for example, uh, I, I want to reach out and connect with someone somewhere else in the world. Well, I forgot that I can do this telepathically. So what I did is I built technology that's trying to remind me that I can do that. Because then I think of somebody and then all of a sudden in the little device in my pocket, it vibrates and sure enough that person just texted me <laughs> right so yeah. i created this device yeah. as a human being to remind me and show me that i can connect with anyone in the world anytime now as we move forward in the future certain technologies are bridge technologies um, virtual reality is an excellent bridge technology um, now obviously it has many risks just like any other technology just like you can be lost looking at your phone and wreck your car, you know, or, or walk into the street and get hit if you're not, you know, paying attention. Virtuality is even you know, more immersive in that way. But the real yeah. beautiful stuff happens with augmented reality, which is really just a, a gateway to holographic projection systems. Now, these things are trying to remind us that whatever we visualize, we can actually see in our reality around us. And if we allow our imagination to see and witness the fact that like, say we have energetic layers to our body, chakras, we can move energy through our hands and extend that energy out into space around us. Um, if we're trying to remember how to do that, well, uh, virtual reality and augmented reality will assist us in that process. So I envision us having some apps 
you know, I have this one idea at the risk of totally giving it away to somebody out there that just does it first, which may happen. I have lots of ideas that do yeah. that. Yeah. Um, I have this idea of doing um, some work in the Guardian Alliance, which is one of my academies, where I record my body doing Tai Chi and different martial arts forms. And then people can put on their augmented reality or virtual reality goggles, and they are actually inside the energetic field of my body. And so they're just trying to align up their body to my body, and they can use some haptic sensors and sound feedback to know when they're right in the right spot because the sound will harmonize and get just right in that right zone as a way to like learn about how to do these moves and different martial arts and different Tai Chi moves um, by literally that biofeedback from being inside the body of the master and recovering other, you know, recovering uh, and recording other masters doing amazing work um, and allowing people to actually like get inside and experience what it's like to be there and line up with their bodies and feel those sensations. Right. You know, I was thinking something like this today as I was thinking about a kind of conversation we might have. And imagine if you had the virtual reality and a virtual reality suit mm -hmm. that then could and you could see in your virtual reality, like uh, your girlfriend on the other side of the planet who's also in a virtual reality suit and they're seeing you and they're feeling you because the suit is giving you the sense of their touch. Yeah, you know, that's you called haptic this, feedback. Right, you could have this haptic virtual reality sex with someone in a way. <laughs> yes, you could. Know. Yes, you could. I mean, right? Of course, I you mean, know, the, the telepathic is almost just as strong. I mean, I, I don't know about you, but I definitely had some phone sex in my in my time and <laughs> and I can tell you, man, just the, the visualization and experience of someone and hearing their voice and connecting with them in that way is uh is powerfully sensual, you know, in its own way. There's there's astral overlays that are already going on there for sure. But a suit yeah. could certainly enhance that. <laughs> but I think no. But I, I I think you're right in a sense. It's all reminding us of the technology we have inside that we have yet to discover. That's waiting for us. But of course, we get lost. Like like Buddha says, you know, uh, don't mistake the finger pointing to the moon for the moon. Right. You know, the technology is pointing us there, but we've gotten caught up in the technology and missed what it's really pointing to, which is our own uh, infinitely immense biotechnology that yeah. each one of us has access to. This is the miracle of, of the human being. Mm, absolutely. So, um, so, so let's talk just a little bit about, so if we're going to live as a multidimensional being, how does that look for you? How do you do it? I mean, and how does that show up every day for you? Well, you know, I'm a teacher, and, and a lot of my work is, is what my students call Jedi training. Um, my, one of my main academies is called the Guardian Alliance. Um, your listeners can check it out by just Googling Guardian Alliance or going to guardian.is.is. Um, and, you know, a lot of our practices and teachings in the Guardian Alliance are about how to live in a multidimensional way. So how do you become a warrior like that's mastered your body and strengthens your physical skills and is grounded and anchored and knows how to deal with 
all kinds of different physical experiences and move with strength and grace and dexterity and then also master the dimensionality of your emotion and your social and your sexual abilities and drop into how to be sensitive to what's happening in in the social field around you or in a sexual relationship and and actually tap into the deeper emotional energy that's moving there in your life and balance it and work with it or how to step into your wizard and learn how to use your mind to strategize and sculpt and form and create and and direct energy with your mind to do magic in the world to make magic happen whether that's creating a business or a project or bringing people together or manifesting that house that you want whatever it is that you want to put your mind to how do you clear and focus your mind so that you can make that happen um, and then we have the healer path which is about developing healing in yourself and healing others and working on the heart level and and developing the emotional sensitivity to do that kind of work to help yourself and recover and and get strong in all the ways you need to get strong um, or the ambassador path which is very throat chakra very how to share your message how to speak your truth how to get it out there how to do media how to overcome your blocks how to overcome your you know writing or or messaging or speaking whatever your block is in that way how do you break through that and get your work to the world and then finally the star walker path which is about developing your awareness of the different levels of your energy body developing awareness of your astral body learning how to lucid dream learning how to astral travel learning how to connect and communicate with spirits uh, whether that's to just talk to your grandma that passed away or to deal with an entity that's stuck here and stuck between the planes and is terrorizing your household or scaring your cat you know like how to deal with yeah. and navigate those spiritual realms so we're, we're helping people to integrate all these different layers of their being and actually develop self-mastery of these different dimensions through um, awareness of themselves and through practicing the gifts that they're good at and also opening up to things that they've never experienced before. Are these all things you've mastered yourself or are, are working on or have, you know, come to understand in some level, I guess, right? Well, I would say that we're all students of reality. And I've just been learning about myself for a very, very long time and integrating a lot of my work and my studies in other lifetimes into this one so that you know I could get ahead a little bit and have a little bit easier time um, in sharing that work and helping people develop those skills um, but I'm not perfect you know I have challenges in my life and I have plenty of challenges in my relationship and you know I think that I think that the beauty that we're in right now is that we all get to be masters and we all get to be students if we're really willing to look at our shadow and see that you know we we all have things to work on and all have areas that we can grow in and we all have things that we can learn from each other and things that each other are amazing at or good at um, of course that's why we're all here together instead of just one one being here we were you know the the illusion is there's many but I'm just curious did you come in then with an awareness of your your previous lives and the gifts that you uh, accumulated in those lives? You Were know, you when conscious? I, when I was really little, 
Um, my mom says that I was super psychic, and I would just pick things up all the time. You know, she'd she'd think about giving me a haircut, and I would just like out of the blue look up from my toys at her and point at my head and say hair, <laughs> and things uh-huh. like that. Um, but you know, then I think I think the school system um, and uh, fluoride swishes and uh, food and things that I was taking in a lot while I was growing up really numbed me out until um, I I went through some major life changes. Uh, My stepmom passed away. My dad, you know, went through a really hard time. My mom moved across the country. Uh, All of these things within a couple years, uh, losing all my friends uh, because of the moves and and then having to really face myself and really question my reality and question everything. And I always had a very scientific mind. so for me, when I finally discovered that I had an energy body and I actually created a ball of energy in my hands for the first time and I could feel the force of it, the vibration of it, uh, the charge of it, and, I, and we began practicing, me and a close friend of mine, you know, where you blindfold yourself, spin around 20 times and then try to locate an object in the room and I realized you could feel it where it is on your hand, like, you know, dousing with your hand. Um, and then we do blindfolded martial arts and, and as I, I began to realize and explore the force, the actual energy of the fabric of space time that is of me and through me and by me and for me and is deeply connected to my consciousness, I began to remember many, many, many things. Um, all sorts of, as I say, like an Akashic library of knowledge of mine from other lifetimes just started pouring into me and and I just started recovering all of this knowledge and then eventually started actually remembering the lifetimes that the knowledge came from and started really doing a lot of transpersonal psychology work studying myself and other people that were having these spontaneous recall sessions uh, of other times and other cultures and other places on the planet. Uh, that they they had no knowledge of from anything in this life, but they had an immensely deep level of knowledge and and memory and skills and experiences that were coming in from other lifetimes. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. a lot of what you're saying uh, relates to some of the Egyptian understanding, the mm-hmm. Ba, the Ka, their their soul travel to Sirius, the the levels of initiation they would go through in their mystery schools. Uh, mm-hmm. did, did any of that come to you? Oh, absolutely. I was definitely in Egypt um, during a time when initially it was kind of at the height of a lot of deep metaphysical spiritual exploration. And uh, Mm -hmm. contrary to the perception that a lot of people have, when Akhenaten came into power uh, during that time period, uh, he also came into power along with a military general helping to push him into power. Um, General Horemheb is the way we describe his name in the history books. And when Akhenaten was like pushed up and into power, um, the general and a lot of the armies that were forming went around and basically slaughtered tons and tons of priests and priestesses, burned temples, um, eradicated information. Uh, A lot of the secret wisdoms and knowledge in different temples was destroyed. And so a huge amount of a lot of the deepest uh, ancient wisdom in Egypt uh, was, was very forcibly and attempted to be completely eradicated when Akhenaten was brought into power. 
Um, and I, I don't think, I don't necessarily blame Akhenaten. I don't think it was his fault. I think he probably was uh, just doing his best and trying to bring forward some spiritual truths about reality. But his work was deeply leveraged by other forces that, that used it to, uh, to really, you know, cut a hole in the line of spiritual energy that was moving through Egypt at that time. And it wasn't long after Akhenaten when he was killed off and then eventually Tut was killed off as a little boy who was made to be a warrior king. It wasn't long before Horemheb took all the power and, mil and Egypt became a military state. And it's been a military state ever since then. So that was a lot of the big fall of the ancient wisdom traditions and magic in Egypt was right there in, in the height of those, those empires. Oh, so we, they fell. They were like the, they left that spiritual understanding and that was part of the descent into sort of where we're at now. It's not just Egypt because Egypt really was the, the springboard for Western culture. Um, so well, we we're just coming back around. Yeah, what were you going to say? There's some interesting synergies, you know, between the series of events there and what happened, um, you know, a couple millennia later with the Christian Church. Because it's interesting because you know you have you have this one God focus coming out with Akhenaten, and it's doing this amazing work of unifying the spirituality in some ways and focusing on this one God. But then you have this militarized force that's using that to destroy anything other than the one God faith, right? And yeah. and then you have the same kind of thing happen with the Roman Empire. Maybe they learned from the Egyptians that did this or something, and they basically oh, were like, we want, we want to spread Christianity, so we're going to go around and wipe out anything that's not Christianity around Europe. Yeah, I think it's cycles. I think history mm -hmm. is cyclical, spiral, and I think history repeats certain patterns yeah. like uh, you know like the like the um, the golden age of Greece was recapitulated in the Renaissance which was then recapitulated in the 1960s that's what uh, <laughs> right Terence McKenna would talk about those cycles of history he was brilliant in understanding that yeah I love and yeah, and he's saying that cycles are going, getting smaller and smaller and smaller until, well, he said December 21st, 2012, where we'd go off the chart, but it doesn't seem to have happened, that we still look like we're repeating some cycles of history, you know? Yeah. And uh, so where does that all take us now? Yeah, so you have a great school, a great academy for people who want to... Uh, really do this I, I would say this is the work of the initiate mm -hmm. this is the mystery school yep. so how would they find that and um yeah well they can just go to guardian.is and i'm also happy uh alan after the link i can send you a special link to post with the interview if you want that'll um, give people some some access both to the free course and um, big discounts like discounted membership if they want to join in and um, take some of the paid courses for like an inner, inexpensive kind of monthly membership. We try to make it as accessible as possible to everybody, like no matter where they're coming from. Um, and so we've done our best to like make everything extremely low cost and affordable. And also, you know, we're trying to support the teachers that are 
pouring their love and their hearts into creating this work um, for the masses. And it's not just my academy. There's many other teachers coming in from around the world. Um, a lot of them, this is like their first, you know, real release of their magnum opus and their sacred work out there um, into, into how to explore some of these mysteries in yourself and develop these skills. And uh, we have more courses coming out all the time. So it's, it's a really fun adventure and people can take the courses at their own pace and stop in, say hi, you know, talk with other students. We have uh, round table sessions we do every couple weeks where we all get on live together on Zoom calls and we're able to, you know, usually there are small groups, you know, 20 people at a time or something will show up and they'll all get to see each other and hang out and talk. Uh, but we have a couple thousand students in the academy, so, you know, we have different people every time. Well, if you need someone to teach uh, remote viewing, I, I've taught that. I've uh, had some really a lot of success with that. I, I studied with you know, the two of the best, uh, I mean, two of the founders. of. I mean, I knew Ingo Swan and, and, and Hal Putoff and Russell Targ. You can actually look at my Russell Targ remote viewing right on camera. So if you need someone for that, I'd be happy to, you know, become a part of that. Thanks, Alan. You know, Let's talk about that another time. That sounds great. Yeah, let me know. And but, uh, but before you go, I'm just curious, what do you see for the future uh, of the planet, of this work, of of multi dimensions, and and the shift in consciousness? How do you see us in the next ten, twenty years? Well, years? in my vision, I see basically a few things really starting to happen, which is. Many of them are already happening, but we're, we're basically rolling out this process in which um, more and more people are having spontaneous awakening experiences. And instead of being totally isolated, when they have these experiences of realizing that there's more to reality than what they thought, and there's more out there than what they've been told, we're trying to create platforms for those people to actually get online and find places that confirm that yes they're right and that is true and there's a lot of good stuff out there um, some of the work is helping to create more foundational platforms uh, that are more validated and accredited and and uh, and visible to people so that they don't just get lost in the YouTube maze because if you're like me or anybody else out there you know that YouTube is just Man, there is there is a lot of good stuff out there, and there is just a lot of junk, and there's a lot of stuff that is is not very helpful. And there's also a ton of websites and information out there that you know, if you do the wrong search terms and you come across the wrong kind of stuff, it can lead you on a wild goose chase way out into you know the far reaches of the new age world, and and it's really hard to figure out what's real and what's true and find your way back. And, and so creating ways where when people receive certain kinds of information, they're also given the context and the tool sets to explore that information on their own. And so they practice the information. They, they check it themselves. They test it out with friends. And then, you know, even if their friends around them and their community doesn't entirely believe them, they come into a new way where they're starting to be ambassadors and lead other people into those visions and into those ideas. 
Now, simultaneous to this, you have technologies in the works and some of which are already being rolled out. Um, we're well along the way to having a replicator, which was a huge innovation in Star Trek, which basically allows us to have resource freedom because we can create gold or create silver, create any of these kinds of things from scratch. And at that point, there's no longer any value to gold. There's no longer any value to this or that. It's actually the art of how you create something. But you're saying you're creating a machine. You're creating a machine or a machines being created that will replicate matter in any way we want it. Is that it's what you're already saying? Already being done. There are there. I was actually tracking several different um, several different pieces of work on this front for the past uh, eight years or so. Um, uh, molecular beam epitaxy, which is used to build gemstones, one molecule or one atom at a time, was one of the most advanced type systems. Um, but now there are there are some uh, some systems that are now becoming uh, deeply being researched that use uh, bacteria in alignment with cymatic sound frequencies and. Uh, laser light holography that's that's impacting atoms and molecules that can literally transform elements into other types of elements. Um, wow, and they've been able to actually make gold, like alchemist creation of gold from really? other heavier elements using this this uh, device that leverages um, these these bacteria that are working with the molecules and processing them along with the sound and light. And that's the way that I was always seeing that it would happen and I've talked about for years and years and years, that it's gonna take cymatics with laser holography and then missing ingredient, bacteria, life, right? Life is this transforming wow. element that's there. <laughs> it's pretty this, fantastic. That's just better than 3D printing. I that's mean, right. that's primitive. I that's mean, right. this is, a replicator oh my god this yeah. is incredible so we're well on our way to that technology i think we're also well on our way to um, new energy systems and technologies uh, that are distributed localized you know um, there's there's new good stuff in the works in that field a lot and then the third kind of big critical piece i talk about a lot is the gravity drive and that's developing the ability to uh, basically create a standing wave in the fabric of space-time around an object that acts like an envelope or a bubble that separates that object from the surrounding space-time. And once you do that, you're able to basically move that object through space-time as if it's in another dimension. Like you can just literally straight through space-time without any acceleration. There's zero warping of the fabric of space. There's zero friction. And so the internal gravitational state inside the object never changes, and outside that object can be on one side of the galaxy to the other instantaneously. Um, but, so but speed how limits that, are no longer an issue. But does that, when you're doing that, when you're developing that, and, and that's amazing, does the, how does that affect consciousness? I would think it has some effect on perception, consciousness, or sense of self? Have you looked into that aspect of that? Well, what's interesting is that consciousness already behaves that way. Consciousness uh. already behaves non-locally. So we're able to move our consciousness pretty much instantaneously anywhere we want, anytime we want. Whether you believe it's actually happening or not, if you suddenly visualize yourself outside of the atmosphere looking at the Earth, and you're seeing the Earth, 
some part of your consciousness just jumped, you know, like 10 miles, like boom, straight out, and you're there, a, a thousand miles maybe. Um, if you zoom in and you look at the moon's surface or you fly through the planets, you know, and zoom all the way out of the solar system or out of the galaxy, there's a part of your consciousness that's capable of actually, as you know, as a, as a remote viewer, receiving information yeah. from those other locations. And so yeah. because we can actually do that with our consciousness, that's the key to running, developing, and working with ships that have the capacity to augment that and allow us to travel faster than light. How, how soon do you think we'll have that technology? Man, if, if, I, if everything is going the way that it was going prior to 2012 and, and the, the tracks kind of get back online, I think it's very reasonable to look at some of these technologies being fully developed and released in the next 10 to 20 years. So it's, oh, my goal is basically within my lifetime, we are galactic. And, and I was hoping to make it happen a little bit younger. I was aiming for 2012, but as I said, it seems like some timelines got a little shifted and that's all right. And, but everybody's still on track that we have to go through this little bit of an initiation process as a human species, come into the maturity that we need to come into to actually manage and host our planet, um, which means taking responsibility for our planet. And to do that, you know, we have to overcome some of the, the control system limitations that are in place right now and develop alternative solutions so that we can actually be ambassadors of planet Earth and not just of the United States or of, you know, the EU or of Africa or whatever and actually yeah. have a real United Nations because we don't have a real United Nations right now. We are very, very separated very, by very strong yeah. lines and very strong belief systems. Um, and there is a heck of a lot of lying still going on. And so we're doing our best to surface those lies and to make sure people really see and know where they're being deceived and how they're being lied to so that we can make actual choices based on the truth and what's real and what's actually happened on this planet and where we're really going. Well, we're separated within our own country, within our own families, actually. Yeah. I mean, you know, so it's like that's the fractal we're having to work with on healing on all these levels. That's right. Especially galactic, because that's, that's where it really you know, clicks into a, a higher level. Well, but yeah. this is great because we are in our way. I mean, and and connecting it to a bigger picture makes it even uh, more important, more valuable, but in a way more real, you know? It's not just about the human drama here. It's about something bigger. Yeah. So. <laughs> Funny for you to say that as the siren's going off in the background. I hear it over there. Uh, <laughs> New oh, yeah. York. <laughs> Yeah, that's the New York Symphony. Yes, the siren. <laughs> yeah. But uh, you say that about Miami too. But um, <laughs> no, I appreciate your your work and your. Um, but the 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 intelligence of, and and the the freshness and the innovation you're using from wherever you came from to look at these problems in in a way in, in a new way and that's what we need because the old way hasn't worked obviously right mm -hmm. so far so uh, thank you so the two places people can find you at um or a couple of places online are where again 
Well, you can just Google my name, Adam Apollo. It's a good way to find a lot of stuff by me. Um, but uh, the Guardian Alliance is my main focus in Academy right now, and that's at guardian.is, um, or just Google Guardian Alliance. Uh, you can also find me as a faculty on the Resonance Science Foundations uh, Academy called the Resonance Academy. Um, and that's uh, academy.resonance.is or just resonance.is, like resonance is. Um, and uh, I'm going to be releasing a, uh, a physics uh, exploration of the unified harmonic matrix, which is my work involving geometry and consciousness and the fabric of space. That elective course is coming up pretty soon to be released through that academy so stay tuned for that because that'll be out before my book is finished and um yeah just you can jump on any one of my mailing lists and i i send out updates uh the guardian alliance is probably the best place to find find out more about the work that i'm doing on a regular basis and thanks so much for having me on the show alan no, well, thank you. I, I mean, it's just great the people that Nassim has sort of drawn to him in the rise. I mean, William Brown has some amazing ideas, right? Yeah, Do you I know William? William? Absolutely. He's a good friend of mine. And that other guy who was living up in Oregon, I think, and somewhere, uh, where was he in Oregon? Was I, I met him in L.A. He had a bunch of incredible ideas about uh, life emerging out of the time space matrix you know you know that name jonathan or something uh, jonathan uh, hmm. i don't know if it's jonathan because the name it's not popping into my maybe. mind who you're talking about i mean i know i know a crew in ashland that were collaborators yeah, maybe it was with forest tech um which is a uh, they were working on water technologies um mm -hmm. and uh, they, i have a few friends that are part of that that collective and that group but but yeah, I think this is the, I mean, coming together with these affiliations and of course developing your own things is, um, it's hope for a generation uh, that doesn't know where to turn and, um, you know, is, is, it might be even confused by all the, the pseudoscience and spirituality and, and, and I think you, Nassim, all these William Brown, you're all offering um, very concrete ideas to be to deal with reality and consciousness and 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 physics. So um, yeah, I'm, I'm always happy to talk to you, and hopefully I'll see you in New York. Uh, so let me know. Drop me a line. Okay, great. And if and, anybody's up in uh, Maryland area. I'm going to be teaching a couple workshops at the Luna Light Festival coming up this weekend, the 14th, 15th, and 16th. Um, oh. And, uh, and I'll, if you're in North Carolina, I'll be teaching at the Leaf Festival the following weekend, 21st, 22nd, 23rd. And then if you're in Detroit, I'll be at the Awake and Empowered Expo uh, in Detroit, November 3rd, 4th, 5th, and 6th. So um, just in case your listeners are in any of those zones and want to come meet me, I'd love to meet you. And thanks again so much, Alan, for having me. I really appreciate it. I'd love to be back on your show anytime. Sure. We'll do a video interview when I uh, see you, if we have a chance, if you have some time in New York. Um, and that'll get you a lot more listeners on my YouTube channel. So, yes, okay. thank you. It's great that you're out there speaking because these are ideas people need to hear because you're expanding possibilities. So. Thank you, Adam. Thank Anytime. you for being here. Thanks so much, Alan. Okay.
Sure. I've been talking to Adam Apollo, a uh, really amazing researcher, uh, personal development, but also taking this to a whole level of expanded, I would say, galactic physics and consciousness. So, um, yes, this, this interview will be posted on BBS, on iTunes, if you're listening, to, so you can listen to it again. Also on my website, newrealities.com. If you want to reach me, you can email me at newrealities at earthlink.net and go to my website, newrealities.com. Also my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash newrealities. Thank you for listening. And um, next week, we'll have a whole new show, a whole new area, uh, but always about this evolution of consciousness. Thanks for listening tonight. Good night.